Greetings and welcome to Shnayim Mikra, the wonderful podcast series developed and sponsored by the Orthodox Union hosted here at OU.org, in which each podcast features the reading, translation, study, analysis of each one of the of a, of a different uh, aliyah of one of the current week's parasha, uh, Parsha's aliyot. Uh, my name is Yitzhak Shalom, and I'm honored to be back with you to study Parshat Ki I'll be with you next week to also study Parshat Ki And these are momentous parashot, uh, because, um, as I mentioned in the introduction to Sefer Dvarim, back in the middle of the summer, when we were, uh, when we were studying Sefer, uh, Parshat Dvarim, Sefer Dvarim is made up of several large sections. The first piece, is a, it's all a speech of Moshe Rabbeinu. The first piece is Moshe Rabbeinu's Musar. His ethical teachings, his religious teachings, his theological lessons that begin with the historia, historiography and his, really historiosophy and uh, the travelogue of Bnei Yisrael's travels. After, after which we have the description of Mamad Har Sinai and Cheta Egel, etc. And all of that ends really at the end of Parshat Ekev, the beginning of Parshat Re'eh, or a little bit into Parshat Re'eh, introduces the second main section, and is the most significant section of Sefer Dvarim. It's what we refer to as Neum HaMitzvot, the mitzvah speech, in which Moshe reviews mitzvot, introduces new mitzvot, um, that, uh, that of course are the source of much, much study uh, among um, in, in Midrashei Chazal, and Yishai Halacha, among Rishonim and Achronim alike, as to why particular things are repeated, why certain things are not repeated, why they're repeated a certain way, in a different way, etc. The climax of Neumah Mitzvot is our parasha. This parasha is the most dense and intense parasha, just as far as numbers of mitzvot go, and that is parashat ki So we will have lots and lots of material and as an editor blessed with great material always has the most difficult problem not deciding what to share but what to leave out. Uh, but we will begin with Parshat Ki which picks up from the end of Parshat Shoftim, of course. And the end of Shoftim, nearly the uh, the last third of Shoftim, is devoted to Am Yisrael going to war. When they come into the land, they're going to go to war. What are the protocols of war? Who goes to war? What does the Kohen Mashuach Muhammad announce? What happens in certain circumstances in war, cutting down trees, etc. And then finally the case of the Egla Arufa, and now we continue. When you go out to war against your enemies, Now, the question is, is this part of the Kitetse, meaning, and if God gives them to you and you take captives, then, etc. Or does it mean, God will give them over to you, and that, of course, is a, a very different read. In any case, once you have the captives, v'ra'ita bashivya, you look in the captivity, eshet yifatoar, and you see among the captives a beautiful woman. You desire her, you want to, and you do take her as a wife. So what do you, what, what's the next step? You bring her into your house, which means the war seems to be over. You've gone home. And among the, cap- the, cap- uh, the captives, you bring this woman home. She should shave her head. She should do her nails. Does it mean to let them grow long? Or does it actually mean 
to cut them. She should take off the clothes of her captivity, which are her regular clothes, and then you put on these sort of shoddy clothes. And she should stay in your house. She should weep for her parents for 30 days. Now, does this mean that her parents have died in the war, and she's an orphan, and we have to allow her to have that period? Does it mean that she is not going to ever see her parents again, and she's weeping for that? Are Aviha and Ima metaphors for her nation and her gods and her former life? Again, many approaches to that. Then you can go to her and have relations with her. And then she's your wife. However, if you don't desire her, you have to let her go free. If you can't sell her, meaning you might find some other guy who likes her, you can't sell her to him. Reminds us of kidnapping. Do not work her hard or do not mistreat her in that way. In lieu of the fact that you have already oppressed her. Now, inita is a word which appears in many contexts and seems to refer specifically to um, to either deprivation of uh, of sexual congress or hurting in some way. So, for instance, when Shechem takes Dina, the same word is used. However, when Lavan gives uh, the, makes Yaakov make the promise, says, and that seems to mean if you deprive them of Ona, of their regular time of having relations. So, here could mean one of two opposite things. One may mean you took her, you had relations with her, now you owe her at least if you don't want her to let her go free. Or the opposite is the fact that you deprived her of sexual relations, then that means that you have to let her go free because that's also a pain. Now the question is how do we read it? Depends on the following issue. Does the man take her into the house, have relations with her, then she sits there for 30 days, mourning, looking disheveled, weeping, etc. And then after that time you decide, I'm not interested anymore. Uh, and then, because you already had relations with her, you have to let her go. Or is it the opposite? That you bring her into the house, and you have her sit there, and you restrain your temptation for 30 days. And at that point, if it turns out you don't want her, you have to let her go, because inita, you have deprived her, in a sense. Different ways of reading this. <clears throat> and uh, it's a long discussion in the Mechilta, and it's a discussion in Masachet Kiddushin in the middle of the first parak about what exactly is going on in this parasha, there is, of course, an overriding issue, which is the entire scenario is one that we find very distasteful. The idea that somebody's going out to war, and they see a woman among the captivity, and he likes the way she looks, and she doesn't get a say in any of this. And he grabs her, and by the way, if he does like her, that means she has to join the people, and she has to convert, and she has no say in this whatsoever. Just because she's pretty, this seems to be very, very unfair. And that's why Chazal say that really this is something the Torah frowns upon. Rather, what did Hashem say? Mutav Israel tmutot Better that Am Yisrael should eat shchutot than nevelot. Meaning, our sense is this guy is going to do it anyways. And if we don't give him a framework within the law and uh, uh, of how to take this woman to his own house and to have her as a wife, then he's simply going to grab her and have her as a mistress. And it's going to be bad for everybody. 
Therefore, this little concession to man's, uh, shall we say, uh, more bestial instincts, especially that come out in the context of war, was granted. And it seems as a beautiful explanation of this, picking up on those lines, is that if somebody is going to do something anyways, and there is no allowance in the law for it, they do it, they immediately feel like they're outside of the law, they're going to follow that train down and they're going to just leave everything. If, on the other hand, there's a little bit of an allowance made for them, then something that they're going to do anyways, they will do and feel like they are still within the community. They are still within the, the community of loyal members of the Breed, and then they have no reason to leave. Various pearls of wisdom about this, uh, ranging from the 2nd century Mechilta all the way to 3rd century Mechilta, all the way to the 19th century commentary of the Nitziv. Uh We continue on. If a man has two wives, which of course is permitted in the Torah, one is beloved and one is hated. Now, snua here, we have to read a little differently. The question is, what does le'ehov and what does lisno mean? So le'ehov on its own means to uh, to love. Lisno on its own means to hate. But when you're talking about two next to each other, the best way to translate it really is preferred and less preferred, or unpreferred. So there's one wife who he really likes, one who he likes less. And they both give him children. But the eldest son is is the uh, less preferred wife's. So when he, on the day in which he bequeaths his children, his estate, he cannot favor the Ben HaUva over the Ben HaSnua, who is the Bechor. Rather, he has to recognize and identify the Ben HaSnua, lots of halachot we get from the word Yakir, to give him two parts. We'll talk about Pishnaim in a minute. And that, of course, the famous halacha of only Ra'ui, only Muchzaka, not Ra'ui, that uh, whatever the father's estate has currently, when he dies, he gives two parts to the Bechor. He is his first strength, his first child. The Bechor belongs to him. One little comment about Pishnai before we go any further. The word P, which in modern Hebrew means time, so P mea, P elef, a hundred times, a thousand times, in Tanakh only it shows up in the context of P shnayim. And P shnayim really is probably better translated, not as two times, but two thirds. Uh, if you take, think about this parsha, you've got two sons, and he's dividing his property into three parts. Two thirds goes to the Bechor, the other third goes to him. Take a look at the other example of Pishnaim, which is when Elia, Elisha asks Eliyahu, that really what Elisha is asking is, I want two-thirds of your spirit, meaning I want to be recognized as your eldest student. And the clincher, of course, is the Pasuk in Zechariah, when it says that Pishnaim will be killed and Hashlishit, one-third will live. So you see that Pishnaim means two-thirds. Of course, the word P means a third, and that has a lot to do with the famous Pim coin, and uh, that's something that uh, is for another time. If you want to listen on the OU, we Baruch Hashem have the Nach Yomi set, and go listen to Shmuel Aleph Perakid Gimel, and there I describe the Pim coin and what that teaches us. In any case, the third and final piece of the first Aliyah, Kiel Ish Ben Sorero Moref, a man has a son who is rebellious, and Nenu Shomai Bukal Avivukal Imo, he doesn't listen to his father and mother's voice, and they afflict him. 
and he doesn't listen to them. Halachically, this is interpreted as Yisro told actually taken a beitin and he's whipped and flogged and he still doesn't listen. So there's two visits to beitin. His parents grab him. They take him out to the elder of the city and to the gate, which is where the court is. This is what they say to the people. This son of ours is rebellious. He's not listening to us. And then they add a new piece. He's a glutton and a drunkard. So now we find out what the context is. Is that he's drinking and eating a lot of meat, a lot of wine, as we find out in Chazal. So the people of the city stone him and he dies. You get rid of the evil. Everybody has to see it so that they hear about it and they uh, are frightened and and frightened into uh, making sure that their children do not behave that way or they, if their children, do not behave that way. Now, famously, Chazal interpreted all the terms of Ben Sora and Moraz, so it can't happen. To be a ben Sora Moray, you have to be a ben, so you can't be too old. On the other hand, you have to be somebody who can be punished, so you have to be a certain age. So there's a three-month window in there. You have to steal from your father and from your mother, and then you have to eat it in somebody else's property. It has to be a huge amount, and you come to Beit Din, and the parents have to be both not only committed to this process, they both have to be capable. They can't be lame. Either one of them are blind or deaf or mute. And they both have to agree to do this, and they have to have the same voice. So many drashot that finally led at the end of the sugya in the eighth parak of Sanhedrin to say, "Ben Sorer Umorer Lo Hayav Nivra Lamanichtav Why was this parsha written? It never happened. Never will happen, um, because uh, there are many lessons to learn from it, and there's a, a value to learning. You you get a schar for learning this parasha. Famously, however, Rabbi Yochanan said. I sat on his grave, which means that there was a dispute as to whether Ben Sormore ever happened. The same dispute, by the way, happened about two other areas of halacha, whether there ever was an ir hanidachat and ever was a bayit minuga, and that's all in the Sugyan Sanhedrin. However, Chazal made much of the juxtaposition of these three pieces. Um, even though there was a dispute among the rabbis as to whether to read juxtaposition as a significant indicator uh, interpretation-wise, uh, within the rest of Chumash, right, even Rabbi Yehuda, Rabbi Loi, who disagreed and said, juxtaposition is not meaningful in the rest of Chumash, said in Sefer Dvarim it is. Sefer Dvarim is an edited, well-organized text in which things are put next to each other that uh, indicate some connection between them. And homiletically, it was interpreted, you see that even though the Torah allows you to take such a woman, in the end, you're going to hate her. And in the end, uh, she's going to give you a son who's going to be rebellious. However, on another whole homiletic level, and not necessarily homiletically, meaning it is homiletic, but it's very close to, wedded to the words of the text, if you take a look here, you can see references here back to the first Jewish family, the family of Yaakov. And it's an interesting piece because normally we associate later narratives with earlier narratives, perhaps later prophecies with earlier narratives, we don't often pick up on a connection between a legal text in the later parts of Chumash and narrative earlier on in Chumash. Uh, however, here it's quite clear. The only woman in Chumash to be called Yifatoar is Rachel. And here a man takes this Yifatoar. What's the next thing that happens? He has two wives. The only man that we know of in Chumash who had two wives, of which one was less preferred, and the word Snua appears, is of course Yaakov with Rachel and Leah. And, of course, the Bechor was 
Leaz. And of course, Yaakov favored the Bechor of Rachel and gave him the Bechorah, and that's Yosef. So the Sforno here comments and says, Father's not allowed to do that unless he sees that the Bechor of the Sniar really isn't behaving appropriately, and that's the Pasuk in Divrei Aimim, Aleph, Parakeh Pasuk Aleph, that says that when Yaakov saw that Ruvain behaved badly with Bilhah, he took the Bechorah away from him and gave it to Yosef, justifying the, the granting of it to Yosef. In the end, you end up with a Ben Sorero Moreh, which was certainly how the brothers viewed Yosef. Of course, much of these details don't play out that way, but nonetheless, there does seem to be, in a sense, a subtle critique here of Yaakov and the way that Yaakov interacted with his wives and with his children in this particular parasha. Okay, we'll pick it up with the second Aliyah of Kitetse in the next podcast. Meantime, you should have a wonderful day.